This is weird. I, I forget I forget where to put my hands. At least at least you're not making me do that clap thing. Jesus, I was no good at that. <laughs> that was amazing. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> I have no rhythm. <laughs> that's what we discovered. I have no timing. Uh, well, that's all right. Well, uh, I'll you can you can um, put your feet on my feet and I'll take you around the room. <laughs> Thank you. Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Complete Anya Sparta. I'm Matt Gasteyer and I'm here with my co-host Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? I'm doing well, Matt. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I feel uh, rested, uh, revitalized, and uh, my third R is uh, ready to <laughs> talk nice. Agnes Varda. I'm, uh, I'm super excited as well. I think... Uh... I think taking a, a little time to really uh, rejuvenate and uh, match uh, Anya's uh, fantastic energy with ours is, uh, is the appropriate thing to do. So I'm excited to dive in and talk all about uh, this trailblazing filmmaker. I, I was going to save this for, for a little bit later, but now that you mention it, I just, uh, the first interview that I watched with her uh, for this, I. A minute in I just had this like incredible sigh of contentment um, knowing that I was gonna be listening to this like warm intelligent a little cocky um, and uh, just incredibly thoughtful person for the next uh, however long this takes us to get through her filmography um, she's just a pleasure to listen to and to read and um, it's uh it's very uh enjoy it's a very enjoyable uh feeling to know that that uh, i'm going to be spending time with her oh completely yeah listening uh you know watching a movie going back and uh listening to her intro or the the interviews about it and it's like she was she was she just like washed up on the shore of the in belgium and uh fully formed and ready to uh change art and uh <laughs> She she's completely aware of it and more than happy to discuss it. Remember it. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm excited to uh, to uh, learn so much more about her. Yeah, I mean she's. Uh, it's funny because her obviously her reputation has evolved so much over the years, um, and there is definitely this sense from some of her her biggest kind of admirers, um, and then also just sort of film curmudgeons that she has been uh, slotted into this role, especially um, in her later years as this, you know, cute little old lady who naps on the Criterion couch and, you know, everybody's got uh, the Agnes, Ad, Anya Varda tote bag uh, <laughs> and, you know, all this um, stuff that really doesn't reflect uh, who she was as a person or an artist. Um, and uh, I, I don't have like a, a ton to say about that point, but I just think it's worth noting that, like that evolution and, and the idea that when you dig into her work and when you read what she had to say throughout her life, um, you, you get this entirely different picture of her, um, which is not incompatible with, with that other side of her, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, 
the lovable cat lady. <laughs> but I think um, there's there's just a lot to uh, to explore in in what she produced and what she had to say about it. It seems that she was uh, already fully formed as that lovable cat lady. You know that you know how when uh, we uh, in uh, in our culture when uh, people get older um, they start to uh, their filters start to decay over time and it's like she was born without that filter and yeah. more than happy to point out uh, the wrongs or the way things are doing or not standing in line to wait for her turn and just going and getting it and so it's a uh, it's very funny to kind of like see her you know growing up with her in her older uh, older years when she's uh doing those things like sitting on the criterion couch and taking a nap or showing up at uh, festivals and giving conversations about things or even watching her later documentaries about herself you know you you kind of erase that uh younger version and then when you start seeing all these films and reading about her she's like oh no she was like that from the beginning <laughs> she's yeah. uh, she's uh she's been very very forward about what she uh, what she wants what she can accomplish and what she's uh trying to do it's uh it's nice to hear someone so clear about this is my intention this is how i got there this is what i wanted to do and then here's the film that shows what i did as opposed to a lot of really pretentious artists who kind of like we were finding this you know finding the shot as we moved through and you know just this is so esoteric and uh and uh just out there where she's very grounded in like what she wants and what she needs and how she's going to approach it it's almost very workmanlike in some of the things she's uh doing uh in terms of her preparation and i you know the research that goes into it it's a uh, super appreciated as a show that uh we do that is super researchy it makes me very happy to see that she's also very researchy <laughs> yeah well and and she was uh, an artist who lived and worked in the same place uh for 60 years um and was really uh you know i think that's just reflective of of that feeling of like she knew where she wanted to be and stuck with it which is not to say that she had she didn't have you know significant um deviations and unexpected areas to explore in her career which we'll get into i mean most notably i think um her california two california phases and then um her experience making films after her husband died but there this is certainly a situation similar to someone like Kubrick, who, you know, by the way, uh, also started out as a photographer, um, who knew exactly what she wanted to talk about and the, the types of things that she wanted to explore um, in her career very early. And even though she went through a wide range of subjects, um, she really continued to stick with those themes to explore them in more depth and evolve them with the times so it's um it's a very long career it's the longest career that will uh, that we've covered up to this point in terms of just chronological time uh, it's also the largest body of work that we've covered up to this point which is certainly intimidating for a, a podcast that releases uh one episode uh, a month maybe <laughs> we'll yeah. see we'll see if we ever finish this one but it's certainly a, a wonderful experience to um to to dig into so much um varied and yet um thoughtful work that builds into a, a greater whole 
I couldn't have said that better myself. That's a very astute observation on uh, on this figure that we're gonna that we're gonna journey with. I did want to talk about um, the Godard of it all. <laughs> ah. um, I think he's a uh, you know you mentioned um, pretentious filmmakers. <laughs> uh, not to alienate anybody who's a Godard fan, um, there's some of some of his work I truly love, and he was somebody who I think you know the pretense was backed up with a, with a deep, um, intellectual heft heft. Um, but he was certainly somebody who, uh, was constantly evolving and rejecting, uh, his work from the past and questioning, um, and sort of, you know, searching for something new and, and different, um, in a very, what I would characterize as masculine, way uh, mm-hmm. sort of inserting his will onto the evolving times and techniques um and he cu- he will come up you know quite frequently during uh during these conversations i'm sure um as they they were close especially in this this beginning phase of their career um but i also wanted to talk about just the difference in terms of um you know, Varda's reputation has certainly grown in stature, even over the last um, 10 to 15 years. Uh, I've watched, you know, from when I first was exposed to more of her films than just uh, Cleo 5 to 7, which is, you know, certainly her most famous film. Um, I have watched her her reputation grow uh, in a very justified manner, um, but similar to the, the way that the reputation of uh, many female filmmakers have grown over that same time period, um, similarly justified. Um, but before that, she was kind of a background figure in, in the new wave, you know, famously uh, uh, regarded as the mother or grandmother of the new wave, which I always found a little condescending, but Varda embraced it. So I guess I'll, we'll go with it. Um, but that was really by a, a smaller, uh, academic portion of cinephiles or film studies people. And in generally speaking, you know, 400 blows and breathless got all of the oxygen and, I think the film that we're going to discuss today, um, while I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's as accomplished as those two films, um, is certainly just as brazen and competent and, I mean, in, from my perspective, uh, significantly more impeccably composed um, as a film than those two films are. And yet they, you know won all the awards and took the world by storm. And, um, you know, when you're first getting into film, you hear about 400 blows and breathless far before you hear about a point court. Oh, completely. I'd also like to thank you for making that uh, breathless 400 blows, sucking all the oxygen pun. Uh, that was uh, very <laughs> lovely. Uh, jokes are always accepted and uh, appreciated. Uh, wordplay is fantastic. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, I think she was uh, a lot of times in that circle. She was referred to as uh, uh, Petit Agnès, which is uh, she looked at as a diminutive title to put her 
down a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, she accepted it for what it was, but she knows that it was something that was, uh, she was referred to just to, uh, you know, uh, cut her down in her stature and her size and, uh, make her feel less than, but, uh, you know, she, like you said, um, she was breaking all those rules like the, uh, new wave did. Um, but she was doing it unintentionally. She was doing all of the rule breaking through a, uh, through a gut feeling. Um, because, you know, she knows composition and she knows how to frame a shot and she knows that. And, uh, because of all of her years of uh, photographing, 10 years, she was uh, the, the lead photographer for uh, the, oh, I'm going to butcher the name. Let me think about it for a sec. Oh, it was the uh, Théâtre National Populaire, uh, Jean Villard's uh, Théâtre Populaire. And uh, because of that, she just spent, uh, you know, so much time. And she, when she was in the Sorbonne, she studied psychology um, then she went on to study, uh, you know, art, uh, theory and photography. And so she's also very well-rounded. She wasn't getting her knowledge, uh, of the film movement from the streets or from the cinemas, like a lot of the contemporaries around her. Um, you know, she's widely known as, uh, only having seen like, you know, a dozen movies by the time she's making her first film and even those she just didn't like so she wanted to make something so different um snow white and the seven dwarfs being one of them that <laughs> yeah. she just hated because of the way it made the uh woman subservient to the dwarves and uh vilify her as someone uh to be uh polite and nice because she cleans up after a bunch of old men um that rubbed her the wrong way so when she set out to make this movie uh she broke every rule. Uh, she literally paved the way for everyone else to understand that they can break the rules, uh, including, you know, she, she she didn't take the normal tract. You know, if you wanted to be a director in French film at that time, you had to be an AD, third AD, second AD, first AD, and then you can direct your own movie. And, you know, you had to get studio financing. You had to get uh, financing from uh, the French government. Uh all things she just skipped over. She just got some inheritance, raised some money, started a film collective, and then, you know, promised uh, everyone chips in and you all make the same amount of money at the end when we sell this. Unfortunately, it was years and years and years before it was sold as something that could be uh, put into theaters nationally because it was not uh, approved by the uh, Cinema Guild of France uh which, you know, is kind of like our, our Motion Picture Association here in the United States. If it doesn't get the stamp of, uh, of approval, it can't be shown in theaters. So all she did was show it at cinema clubs and take it around. Um, and she had a big champion in André Bazin. For, uh, uh, it was shown to him early, and he brought it and uh, submitted it into Cannes. Uh, which she got a lot of good review and a lot of people liked seeing it and liked it, but it just never was uh, something that was uh, financially viable or picked up to uh, distribute widely and widely. And so because of that, you know, uh, she just kind of moved on. But because of her moving on back to photography and also um, the people who saw it, I think the thing that resonated the most with them was the uh, kind of like the ethnographic docudrama she kind of made as part of the Le Pau Court. And so because of that, uh, you know, it led into two uh, 
short films uh, about uh, different regions of France, which uh, I think you can see a lot of growth in those, you know, having a, to do a work for hire and impose herself upon the subject matter. Um, you know, that's where you can really see her vision uh, completely uh, pushing through the material, um, which is absolutely fantastic. This uh, joyous and kind of buoyant and uh, full of energy and fun uh, popping through the material. So it's a, uh, it's very interesting to see someone that has completely decided to do something her own way without a thought to the way that it was or the way that it is or the way that it's supposed to be and almost direct an entire film based on instinct um, and not have that deep sense of cinema that the older, the uh, the other people in the new wave had. It's so interesting to see that. And then, you know, as usual, it's a time and place thing. She surrounded herself with people that um, also were in the same kind of boat as her. Um, famously having uh, uh, the editor of that movie being Alain Renan. Uh, sorry, I said his name. Alain René. Alain yeah. René. Um, having him be the editor. Uh, and this is before he made his first movie. And so, you know, being able to edit in his style uh, with her with her instinct for what she was doing and her uh, non... Uh, and her very uh, juxtaposing storyline, uh, it totally spoke to him and the way that he saw film as well so it was a quite a fantastic marriage of uh two visions uh helping each other out and, as opposed to fighting each other for uh, dominance which was uh, also awesome to see yeah i mean um their relationship is really interesting it's also worth noting that um alain renee's uh first feature film um hiroshima monomore was co-written by Marguerite Duras, who um, saw uh, Poincourt at um, a screening in Paris that Bazin organized. Or was it Bazin or um, it may have been somebody else? Um, I think it was Andre Bazin. It was, yeah. Yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah. Cause he, he yeah showed, Marguerite gave it to someone. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're he saying. He showed Vigo's apropos to Nice. Mm-hmm. To nice. Yeah. So... Um, you know, I think there's definitely a comparison to be made between Poncourt and Hiroshima Monomore in terms of using the personal uh, within a, a larger um, public social context. Um, in the case of Hiroshima, it was more political. Um, but I think uh, the influence uh, of this film is most clear on uh, on Renee's first two films, uh, Hiroshima Monomore and, and last year at Marion Bad. Um, their relationship is very interesting. They're both sort of lumped into this left bank movement, which wasn't so much a movement as just a way to delineate uh, some of the filmmakers of that generation from the new wave, official new wave uh, filmmakers who all came from Kaye to cinema. Um, and there's a great story uh, that Farda tells about meeting Renee and he isn't sure that he wants to edit, uh, this woman's film. Um, and he asks her to, uh, to go through the rushes and mark them just to make sure, you know, just to organize them to get ready for, uh, for editing. And she does it in, I think 
like three days or something like that. And there's like 30,000 feet of film. And he said, and he apparently said that this woman is crazy. I'm going to definitely work with her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he, you know, I think the most interesting thing, and I, you know, I think we're probably going to get into a situation during the season, perhaps similar to Elaine May, where I'm not sure how much to rely on what Varda says about her um, past or her films. I think sometimes she can be a bit of an unreliable narrator. So when she says that she had seen fewer than 10 films in her life, um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm prone to take her at her word, but I, yeah, as, as a art history major living in Paris, who was immersing herself in art and photography, uh, at a time when cinema was sort of being driven as, as the new, uh, art form to be taken seriously, um, you know, they were first uh, founding, they were founding the, the, the first kind of repertory theaters and film libraries. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much I believe it. But <laughs> that being said, um, I think, you know, the fact that she was somebody who was not um, oblivious to narrative form, uh, whether it's through film or through books, um, she picked a Faulkner book, The Wild Palms, to model her structure on um, that was uh, not conventional. So she was ready, you know, to to assume uh, that she really hadn't seen 10 films. Uh, this unusual structure was not because due to ignorance. Um, she was well aware of how to tell a story in a conventional way and she chose this unconventional way because she felt that that was the best way to tell the story that she wanted to tell and it was the most interesting way to tell the story um so i think that aspect of her um that boldness is going to be very apparent through her career and the choices that she makes um when she goes to make these films. Um, and the other thing about her that I think is notable, um, is that, you know, Kishlovsky did, um, certainly started out his career as a documentary filmmaker, but once he made the transition to narrative features, uh, he very rarely went back to documentaries and never made a, a full feature documentary. Um, I was struck by looking through the films that we are going to cover uh, throughout her career by how much she very much is a film documentary filmmaker. Uh, the, the, the number of films of hers that are documentaries um, pretty significantly outweighs the fiction films that she made. Um, and then she did a lot of mixing of documentary filmmaking and narrative filmmaking within the same uh, film. And, and, and many times through her career uh, linked a feature documentary with a narrative feature. Um, 
which I, you know, I think is just an, an incredibly fascinating approach to, to making movies, um, in, in the sense that each piece is stronger, uh, for having the other piece. So I, I, I just, you know, I, th I think it's worth noting that and, and certainly we'll be talking quite a bit about the, the differences in, in approach both for her and for, you know, documentary versus narrative filmmaking in general throughout this, uh, season. Um, but I, I, I did want to just note that this is, you, you know, in a very real sense, the first documentary filmmaker that we'll be tackling on the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, the, uh, her strength seems to come from, uh, gathering the resources around the, the place that she's going to be in, uh, Definitely in in this movie that we're going to talk about today, especially it's a uh, uh, she grew up in this location and uh, when when she moved to Paris, she found the you know life in the city gray and drab and dull, and she wanted to go back to where she grew up uh, to really tell the stories of the people there. Uh, that's what she she liked and. She basically made this movie completely in photograph and through writing down stories and talking to people, writing the language, the the uh, dialect, the uh, turns of phrase they would use in that area, and uh, composed it into uh, the scenarios that she set up for these uh, non-actors to portray, uh, gathering people from the fishing village that she uh, that she wanted to talk about. It's a uh, it's all very much about her using everything around her to and uh, helping crystallize that idea into uh, some sort of narrative form. And it's a uh, it's an absolutely fascinating way of approaching things. Uh, you know, to completely envelop yourself in the story. Uh, by enveloping yourself in the uh, in the place that she's in, and then as you said, Matt, as you go through her career, uh, you can see that throughout. You know, she's she's all in wherever she is. You know, from making that narrative feature, and then she sees, oh, this is interesting. On the outside of making this narrative feature, I'm also going to document what's going on while we're making this because the sometimes the uh, the stories of how things are made can be just as interesting. Or you know, you know this is this is straying too far from uh, reality. So I'm gonna also document reality and the way that I'm viewing it, which is also a uh, just a fascinating. She just likes to make art. She that's what she likes to do. She likes to create uh, striking visuals and tell some sort of story with them. And uh, it's a it's a sure signifier of someone who is passionate about what she does as opposed to looking for some sort of uh, notoriety fame or um you know big hit film or you know it doesn't ever feel about that it feels about her just wanting to tell the stories of different people and that's what i think uh makes her so fascinating it's such a humanist way of uh approaching everything uh and that's what makes this movie uh so fascinating to me that we're about to talk about I, uh, I really like the way that you put that. And, um, I, it made me think of a, a couple of things that I would, did want to talk about, um, before we dive into the film itself. Um, you know, uh, one thing that, that I thought of while you 
we're we're talking was uh, the John Berger essay about the way that um, women experience a social situation or enter a room versus men, um, which, you know, his theory is essentially, and, and this is all obviously not a biological observation. This is a, a social learn learning for sure. Um, that, that, uh, men sort of insert themselves into the room, into the situation and women respond to the situation. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, whether that's accurate or inaccurate, it's certainly, um, a reflection of the way that Farda worked, um, and thought about her filmmaking and responding to the world around her, um, and, and engaging with it in, uh, on its own terms. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's, it, it, it's worth noting that, uh, we, we have covered, uh, a, another film, female film, filmmaker on this show. Um, but Varda is, uh, significantly more interested in, um, engaging with what it means to be a woman, um, focusing on female film care characters, uh, talking about women's issues. Um, one of the shorts that we are covering uh, on this episode uh, addresses directly uh, themes of pregnancy, uh, of intimacy with uh, uh, from a female perspective. Um, and of course, you know, we are two dudes uh, talking on a podcast, a film podcast. You can't get any more uh, dude than that, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. So, it is you know, noted. I think it's, yeah. So I think, you know, it's worth, it's worth noting that, um, that, uh, you know, we are bringing our own experiences to her work and responding to it through the only lens that we have available to us. Um, but I do think, um, it's important to engage with, uh, cinema, with art, with, um, food, with any sort of culture that is, uh, different from you and any sort of experience that is different from you. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to, make space for people who kind of know of what they speak. But I think it's also, uh, you know, it would be a pretty dull world if we only dug into uh, experiences or um, perspectives that mimicked our own. And, um, you know, I think that is just my kind of meek way of uh, saying that uh, I, I think there's uh, plenty of room for us to engage with the uh, feminist or uh, feminine uh, leaning components of Varda's work uh, in a way that I, I hope is is not uh, uh, out of place. I agree. That was well said. I, uh, I was just speaking the other day to someone at work about uh, how... Uh, if you want to if you want to teach your kid to be as a uh, humanist and to be as human and to be as thoughtful and to uh be able to really uh uh have empathy for uh as much as as they possibly can 
the number one way for me to do that is through cinema. Um, you know, you have thousands and thousands of stories from all different walks of life, all different types of people, uh, all different ways of seeing, and the best way to kind of uh, open up that empathy and, and start to see bigger and bigger and bigger the picture of uh, and where you fit in it is uh, through movies. And so I wholeheartedly agree with uh, everything you just said, and I hope that we can uh, uh, ourselves do justice to the work and also... Uh, hopefully, uh, in the future, we will bring some other lenses uh, into our discussions as well to help round things out. So, yeah. And you mentioned Ways of Seeing, which is the uh, John Berger, the John Berger uh, book. book that I just referenced. Yep. <laughs> so there you go. Very nice. <laughs> nice. Um, on this on this topic of, of sort of, you know, Varda kind of responding um, to the situation around her, I did... So I, I wrote on this, uh, film that we're about to cover, um, about 12 years ago, um, just my responses, uh, to seeing the film. I had a very different reaction to it, uh, this time than I did then. Um, but I had linked to this, uh, Godard piece that he had written, um, in the wake of 400 blows being accepted to Cannes, uh, as the French, French representation uh, the only official entry, uh, from the country at that festival that year. And it really, uh, struck me just how, um, different the Varda's attitude, uh, towards filmmaking is and, and, and why she perhaps didn't get the kind of attention that she deserved at the time. Um, just because of what people value. Um, I'm going to read just a little bit of it because it's hilarious because he's such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it starts with, with the, his breathless description, no pun intended, I guess, um, of the, of the, uh, the end of the screening of the 400 blows. Um, as soon as the screening was over, the lights came up in the tiny auditorium. There was silence for a few moments. Then Philippe Erlinger, representing the Quai d'Orsay, leaned over to André Malraux. Is this film really to represent France at the Cannes Festival? Certainly, certainly. And so the Minister for Cultural Affairs ratified the selection committee's decision to send to Cannes as France's sole official entry, Francois Truffaut's first full-length feature, The 400 Blows. So then he goes on to say the face of French cinema has changed. And then he says... He, he like cites all of these different direct directors, uh, recent um, French film directors, including people like Julien de Vivier and Marcel Carnet, yeah. two of the greatest French filmmakers of all time, and says, what we were getting at was simply this. Your camera movements are ugly because your subjects are bad. Your casts act badly because your dialogue is worthless. In a word, you don't know how to create cinema because you no longer even know what it is. <laughs> And then he, he goes, we won the day in having it acknowledged in principle that a film by Hitchcock, for example, is as important as a book by Aragon. Film auteurs, thanks to us, have finally entered the history of art. And then he says, we cannot forgive you for never having filmed girls as we love them, boys as we see them every day, 
parents as we despise or admire them, children as they astonish us or leave us indifferent. In other words, things as they are. Today, victory is ours. It is our films that will go to Cannes to show that France is looking good, cinematographically speaking. Next year, it will be the same again. You may be sure of that. Fifteen new courageous, sincere, lucid, beautiful films will once again bar the way to conventional productions. For although we have won a battle, the war is not yet over. And that's how he fucking ends it. Wow. That is, <laughs> uh, that is full, full of himself. That's like a drunk text. That, uh, you know. I mean, it is it is Godard saying, get ready for the French new wave. We and our swinging dicks are coming into town to slap some faces. You don't fill women the way we see them. All right. The way we love them. <laughs> the way we love them. Yeah. Oh, that is some uh, that is some bold, bold stuff. See, and that's the thing. Like, we can't offend uh, Jean-Luc Godard fans because to be a Jean-Luc Godard fan is to embrace the brazen uh, pompousness of his actions. Like, you oh, have absolutely. to. It's like being a Quentin Tarantino fan, being like, I like his movies, but, you know, the way he talks about movies is, you know, it's a little much. You know, no, you're like, no, he's the best. He loves everything. It's the same thing. Like, if anyone's offended by that, they're like, no, that's right. No, he's a total dick. He's the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's just worth noting um, that at, at the time that movies come out, no matter what movie it is, there's sort of a, a debate, but also a a feeling around them. A uh, you know from the promotion of the film, from any protests around the film, from you know even just critical discussion around the film, that can often uh, be forgotten through history, and certain films become calcified as these towering achievements and they're divorced from the context of the PR campaigns that surrounded them. And so when you go to read film history, you see that 400 blows and breathless changed everything about film. And you kind of forget that the reason why we believe that or why some people believe that is that the people who were making those movies were constantly saying that they changed everything. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> Until people started believing them. That's uh that's the way that that's the way it goes. You say it enough times and it's true and then people write it down and that's just how it is. Right. It's, uh, so it's... so I think like there it's just you know worth noting that a filmmaker like Varda who never had a studio deal who was never able to really she made one film that sort of had movie stars in it that was a fictional film uh which was almost entirely unavailable globally until this um box came out uh which is less like less creatures um was not somebody who was able to win that information war and it was only through the sort of concerted efforts of recent uh, film critics um, and some some sort of significant um, film studies, uh, most most notably, I think, uh, to to desire differently the the film on uh, French uh, female filmmakers, um, which which I recommend to everybody, uh, and I'll certainly be uh, you know rereading along um, as we watch these movies. Um, 
that that Varda was able to be kind of held up as uh, the equivalent of these other filmmakers who were much better at self-promotion and talking the way that the media really responded to at the time and and ultimately still does. I mean, we're dealing with the the results of, of some awful toxic masculinity uh, in this country on a grand scale right now. So, you know, I, I wanted to read that because it, it really struck me just how different um, the way that Varda talks about her early films uh, is, even um, at the time, um, but certainly um, upon reflection, uh, and that, you know, digging into Varda is to uh, look at film history, in particular French film history, in a different light. I agree 100%. I think, uh, yeah. Nope, I agree 100%. By looking at her, it's almost like it's almost like the alternate history of film history. It's kind of like uh it's kind of like uh, the people's history of uh film, which is uh would be completely different from the uh the right. bombastic uh media frenzy of what is the most popular. It's like looking at the uh uh you know, Entertainment Weekly's top 100 films versus uh you know, looking at the top 100 films of like something like Sight and Sound, or uh, you know, there is a there's a couple common denominators, but most of it is uh, wholly different from uh, what we consider a uh, uh, good whole and uh, and something worth uh, remembering. The other thing I um, well, this is quick, but um, I realized this weekend I was thinking about you know Kubrick being a photographer and Kieślowski being a documentary filmmaker super shallow but uh, you know elaine may and varda both female filmmakers and i was thinking like these unique connections uh between each of these filmmakers and then i realized that um cohen also uh was somebody who was uh incredibly invested in the uh barrier between real and fake um between you know what was the movie and what was outside of the movie um, so there, there are these kind of, uh, fairly significant connections, uh, between Varda and the other filmmakers that we've covered on this podcast. Are we going to have to have a complete, complete, where we <laughs> talk about the connections of the films that we've discovered that we've talked about? <laughs> yes, we absolutely, Super meta. we're going to have, we're going to have a, a 100 hour podcast where we rank every movie that we've discussed including reference referenced on this show um well let let's get into the film because i think we've we've sort of set up the background uh, of the movie um at this point fairly uh, um substantially um this this is a movie that you know varda made for i think what was the equivalent of around ten thousand dollars yeah um and uh, shot with two professional actors um, and then uh, a number of uh, amateurs who were uh, people who actually lived in this um, neighborhood of uh, set where, where Varda um, grew up after moving from Belgium uh, to France during World War II. Um, so I guess I'm wondering what you thought of uh, La Pancourt. Um, 
I have mixed feelings. Uh, there's part of him, part of this, part of this film that uh, really resonated with me, and that I was super um, enthralled by. And then there are parts of this movie that were very cold and kind of kept me at arm's length. And I think a little of that is the intention of what she tried to do. And it isn't until after, like, you know, a second viewing and uh, reading, reading interviews and watching kind of her talking about it and other people talk about it. Um, it's kind of the intention of what was supposed to be happening. And so, um, but I did enjoy it. I uh, I think the uh, I think the part that resonated with me is more of the naturalistic uh, kind of uh, neo realism of uh, the fishing village and the stories that are happening there, um, the daily life, the way things are happening. Um, I felt the lover's story uh, was kind of alienating and cold, like you know. But uh, I think that's because of how stylistically formal that section was and how poetic the language of what they were speaking was written versus the uh, really rough and kind of uh, uh, natural way that the uh, people on the streets are talking to each other. Um, so it made for a quite an interesting juxtaposition between the two things. And, you know, as my gut just made me push further and further into the uh, fisherman's stories as opposed to the uh, lover stories, which after a while I kind of felt was, uh, you know, looking at it through modern eyes, you can see the, uh, you know, it's almost a story of, uh, of uh, classes. And, you know, you have these uh, wealthy to do uh, people coming from Paris, whose uh, number one problem is whether or not they should still be in love together versus the problems of these people who are trying to survive. And it's almost you could kind of, you know, if you did a versus them, you could, you know, you're like, oh, well, these fishermen, salt of the earth, these are people that uh, have true hardships, true problems versus this older or this uh, younger uh, couple who their problems don't seem to amount to what the rest of the world is going through. But to them, it's the uh, most uh, most troubling part of their lives at this point. At this point, so it was a. Uh, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, of course, as we always do through talking about it and discussing it, I'm sure my uh, my warmth to this film will grow uh, exponentially. Um, but as of now, it was a. Uh, you know, this is the second time I saw it, and it was a. Uh, I didn't have such a great distance of seeing it from the first time to this time as as you had as what you discussed but uh no it was interesting it's just visually stunning um you know we'll i'm sure we'll talk more about that but um it's arresting and what it's uh showing us uh its point of view is so uh defined and clear and the uh it, it really brings you into the uh, world that it is. It's, you know, it's making up all the little pieces of the world and uh, helping you really transport you to that section. So, um, yeah, I liked it a lot. What about you? What, how do you feel about it on the second viewing? Yeah, I largely agree with you. Um, so the first time that I watched this movie, I guess, and this is the great thing. Everybody should write down what they think of movies uh, after they watch them because you're not going to remember what you thought <laughs> 12 years ago. <laughs> um, I almost entirely talked about the uh, romance component storyline uh, here. 
the real um, art house. It to me like that was the 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 plot of this movie, and the other stuff was just kind of like color around it. Mm-hmm. Watching it uh, this time, I have no idea what the hell I was talking about um, because <laughs> to me, like the 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 core of this film it, uh, is the 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 village, the uh, things that are going on around this couple and certainly the couple feels like they're in an entirely different movie which is the intention um but it's just so much less engaging than what uh varda was able to capture about this community uh that um most of the time they were on screen i was just sort of waiting (laughs) for them to get (laughs) off screen so i could get back to the uh, the interesting parts, yeah. Um, but of course, they're they're sort of uh, two things. I mean, first first of all, they're they're very beautifully shot in an, and they're constructed in a very interesting way. So there's it's not completely uh, a loss there. Um, but then there's the fact that they are there and that they're very intentionally um, different from what. Uh, is happening and the way that it's being shown um in the other storylines that um you kind of you know you kind of have to engage with it and say you know what is this doing here what how how do we kind of reconcile these two storylines and i think you know the 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 way that you put it uh in terms of it being a lot about class is kind of the way is 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 largely the way that I took I took the the juxtaposition, which is interesting because that is not at all what Varda talks about. And again, like we're kind of getting into this unreliable narrator here. Um, the idea that it is the difference between public and private life is interesting, and you can certainly see it that way. And that's you know, an aspect of Varda's work that is going to carry through to the rest of her work as well. But come on. I mean, <laughs> we don't, nobody talks like that. No. You know, nobody stands like that. Um, and ultimately, like, nobody really has conversations like that in that way. And so, you know, it, to me there's so much more to dig into with that juxtaposition when you consider the fact that these are people coming from the city to this place that has these very specific, distinct problems that they've had forever. Um, And of course, like the sort of ennui uh, existentialism that they talk about in terms of feeling empty in their uh, romantic lives uh, are also problems that uh, that people have had as long as time has been around um, but they're treated in such a more stylized manner that I think it's and 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 stylized in a way that I think is very indicative of a Parisian sensibility yeah that it's 
almost impossible to separate kind of um, what's going on on screen from the the knowledge that these characters are come from different worlds that, that seems to be to me to be like the thrust of the film which is why it's so interesting that varda never really talks about it that way yeah i found that to be weird because it, it is a you know it is such a distinct difference and and it's not like they are completely divorced from the subject matter around them. They do have interactions with uh, people here and there. Uh, the people they're renting the room from right. is, you know, being the best. I think the fantastic line that the wife has, yeah. which is, you know, oh, I wrote it down here. They what talk is, too much to be happy. They will talk too much to be happy. Yeah, exactly. Um, they talk too much to be happy. And that's, you know, it almost... You can almost look at this besides the, you know, the socioeconomic version of it, which is, you know, you have these uh, Parisians coming back to this poor fishing village as a vacation spot to work out their problems versus the, you know, the people that are stuck here that can never leave and all the problems that the real problems they face that, you know, to the point where, you know, the children are dying because of the taint of the uh, shellfish that they're harvesting and trying to sell and they can't afford to move out uh move out to uh deeper waters or different areas because uh to do that would you know just take too much time and so they refuse to change so there's lots of there's lots of things that you can garner from that i mean and the other thing that you can do is look at this as a way of kind of like if she was entrenched in film culture then you could look at this as a battle between like uh, you know, uh, artistic cinema versus the neorealism of like Italian cinema. So, right. like Antonioni's uh, La Ventura versus uh, you know uh, something like uh, Rossellini's uh, you know war films. Um, that that real or you know De Sica or you know, you know yeah. any of those. So you can look at that as that because you know this the sections of this movie, the compositions of the lovers and the talks they have it's you know you could just have them dubbed in swedish and it would totally be a yeah. bergman film as well um so those some of those shots now i wonder did bergman crib them directly for Persona? well it's a good point because yes we we look at this stuff now and say oh it's just like a bergman film but it's nothing like the films that bergman was yeah. making at this time no not at all those are his later yeah. films, his 60s yeah. films you know you look right. at persona and you see some of these shots are almost completely ripped directly from this uh, that uh, you know from uh farda's movie and so you could look at it like that if you were to look at it as a cinema versus cinema. But then the other thing that I kind of took from it the second time around is, you know, the what if the lovers are Agnes or Agnes Varda? Like, what if they're what if they are her? I mean, the the guy has her haircut, so I I assume that it's the uh, you know it's the same kind of <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. But if you look at it as that is is if this is the two halves of her uh, fighting over what to do with her life. So this idea that, you know, she grew up here, she moved mm -hmm. away. Um, she moved away to Paris where she was getting more culture and more experience and, you know, all the stuff that comes with it, all the, the non-organic uh, material that existed there, the structures and the, uh, the nightlife and 
then she's moving back here to set to um, to kind of take a break from that. And now it's her two halves fighting each other on whether we 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 go back to the simple life, the the pleasures of I think that's what the, the person says, the pleasures of living simply um, and how relaxing it is and to do not have to have the concerns of the world versus this other side of her that uh, now has experienced Paris and there's parts of that culture that are seeping into her system, um, you know, because it's telling that she did move back to Paris. She she didn't go back to there to live. Her, her home is in Paris and where she's been spent 60 years of her studio time is there. So, you know, if you look at it as the two halves of her reconciling on what she should do, um, using this term love as a, as a means of kind of like, what your passion is, what you want to do with yourself. Um, you know, do you want to come back here and live a simple life and pretend everything's okay? Or do you want to, you know, move back to Paris and, you know, uh, force, you know, decide to uh, divorce yourself from this older life and kind of pursue new hobbies, new passions, new, new ideas and concepts. Um, this, this reminds me a lot of when we were talking about, uh, uh, Lolita and it's a story of a director kind of figuring things out for themselves this is this has that feeling as well where maybe when she's talking about the inner ver uh, the inner life versus the external life um, or personal versus uh, the town uh, this story does become personal in the sense that if she's talking about herself and where she is at that point in her life and what she wants to do what decisions she has to make um, it makes more sense but also it's still uh, the hyperly stylized uh, language, the hyperly stylized uh, cinematography um, really uh, makes it more structural to talking about mod modernity in uh, Paris at that point. You know, when you're talking about the novel, the Wild Palms or Faulkner or Hemingway in which they are writing, which was really subversive at that time and uh, people were really responding to it, especially young people. Um, that's that modernity that doesn't exist in those pastoral areas in which, um, you know, she grew up in and is deep with inside of her because, you know, that's, uh, it had to be a subject matter that is so strong that she has to, uh, go back and visit it one more time and kind of, uh, retell those tales. And, um, yeah, I think that's, I think there's, that's what makes this movie interesting is you can look at it so many different ways besides what the, original maybe intent was as with all films as you start to dig them deeper and adding the context of people's lives within the film as well so well i i love that i really like the i'd never considered the idea of Var, of varda kind of working through uh her own um feelings and i i think i one of the reasons that i like it is that um it allows for a bit of a um subconscious intent on her part which is that she fell in love with these fishermen and the, their uh, community and the way that they talked and um, you know that that element really motivated her to make this film and if she was thinking about this book, which, you know, for people who don't know, the idea is that it's uh, each, there's two stories being told in the novel and Faulkner alternates between the two stories for each chapter um, and they, they never join. So it's, it's two separate stories. 
um, similar to the film. If she decided that she wanted to make this movie and she felt like she didn't have the same connection to this area that she did in her youth because she lived in Paris, it, it would seem to be a natural um, development that she would choose as her second story something that more reflected her inner and intellectual life in Paris and therefore was wrestling with the idea that these two sides of her could never be combined in any cohesive fashion. Um, it also reminded me of the line in the film, which I thought was one of the more kind of memorable in the in the couple's uh, conversations about how um, the the heart uh, like never stops or never stops needing love. Um, it's the head or the body that does. And to me, like that is the that's the inability of these two things to come together is that um, the the you know the couple's conversations are the head and the um and the the fisherman's experience is the body and there's this heart that wants both of them and is never able to reconcile the two of them together yeah that's a that's a that's where that structural that's where the juxtaposition of these two stories, like in Faulkner's book, where they're so non-related that through putting them next to each other constantly through alternating chapters makes us start to realize there is a relationship in them, uh, not even thematically, but just uh, by being put next to each other. So having that, uh, you know, the the fisherman be the body and the physicality of, of these uh, this place and this feeling versus the couple being the intellectual and the heart and the brain side of things, it really does, uh, it really does help create a, a whole picture of kind of a sense of uh, someone struggling with uh, the past and the present and the future all at the same time, which I find uh, super interesting because the other thing, you know, it's almost so disconnected that when they do appear in scenes that are inside with other people from the other stories, I'm thinking most uh, the uh, the jousting, the river jousting they're doing later, the gondola jousting they do later in the in the movie. Yeah. Um, when they appear in those scenes, it's almost jarring to have them be yeah. in the same scenes. And it it evoked a lot this idea that, uh, you know, uh, Wings of Desire, like this idea of these two people that, you know, they could be ghosts. They could be angels that are just there to take, you know, the body of poor mm. little kid Daniel away. And it's them arguing about what love means while amongst all these people who don't have time for love. I think uh, one of the one of the ladies at one point says the line, uh, "Oh, it's a, uh, I've shit all I've shit all yeah. I can shit or something like that." Like it's I, it's uh, we've crapped out half of all of our shit. There we go. Yeah, they've already given <laughs> you know, there there's there's no time for this. Even even the even the love stories that are developing in the fisherman tale side of the things, you know, they're so 
they're so unromantic. It's just yeah, they're sim- being driven by the parents. Almost, yeah, exactly. The there's no there's no thought. It's like I want to get with that person, and they're like, no, you can't. And then eventually, the lady's like, listen, the only way for this to work is if they get together. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you just have to let it happen. You know, you you know what? We're gonna just not exist anymore because you don't want your daughter to marry this guy. That makes no sense. Just let it happen. <laughs> and it's uh, it's interesting. I think the other. You know, uh, as the film progresses and as we kind of go from the day to day life of these people, um, you know, the uh, very uh, I'll get into that little in a second. But uh, you go to the day to day life of these people and then we go into kind of like how they celebrate and how they like what what is important to them and these, you know, these moments. Then we go into this uh, party scene that ends the film. And there's this great line that one of the it's, it's almost an off camera line. Um, that the old man says parties don't change a thing, but they make us feel good. And that's, you know, to see all these people who are struggling and angry and miserable and upset, lots of physical violence, you know, people hitting the kids and a a child dying because of poisoning and them kind of being underhanded and a guy going off to prison and all this stuff. But then at the end of the movie, there they are all together dancing and smiling and happy because, those are the only moments that they can be truly happy is, you know, yeah, parties don't change anything. The next morning, all their per- troubles are still going to be there. But for that moment, it, it feels good. And that's that's what's important. And you have these this other couple who are spending their whole time not feeling good about anything. And even when they get to that party, they it's at a cold distance of, oh, look at it. We have to get through all this happiness to kind of just to leave to move on you know we've realized we've got to leave this all behind and they kind of push through the party to uh to get on that train to leave to go back to paris together because uh they have to leave this kind of life behind so i find that to be you know it's uh it's 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 uh the way you know the stories aren't as separated as i think uh as the Faulkner book is, you yeah, know, you know, the, they eventually come together in the end. You know, they make sense. They they work in an, in tandem, uh, yeah. versus being such cold, separated things that uh, I think she intended. Yeah, although they still, you know, are sort of fighting their way through the the dance floor. Like it, it does feel still like a little oil and water. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever, like you like you said, like it, when they show up at the jousting, it, it's it's kind of jarring to see them. Not just um, narratively speaking, but stylistically speaking, because the two pieces are so different uh, in the way that they're shot and in their tone. Um, and I think, you know, the, uh, the, the comparison to neorealism has been uh, drawn uh, since uh, Alain René edited the film. <laughs> so before it was even <laughs> finished, uh, which I, I thought was, you know, uh, great for him to say, you know, this reminds me of La Terra Trema. And she, she said, who's Visconti? Um, and I mean, I was immediately reminded of, of La Terra Trema this time, which I had not seen the first time that I saw this movie. Yep. Um, but I think for me, there was a, a lot more uh, of the poetic realism of uh, the films that you know carnet's films uh of the 30s or even um some of the films that were being made at the at the time in france something like gervais um 
in that the fisherman scenes were infused with a lot more life and vitality. Um, you know, the, the dinner scenes in particular really felt uh, super similar to a lot of those movies that were being made at the time. There's less of the, I mean, there's certainly uh, some uh, political components of the story here with with the the areas that they're allowed to fish and um you know trying to get the inspectors uh kicked out of town but generally speaking i think it is more uh, of a film about their way of life and general kind of the i guess the cycles of how they live and the things that they need to survive and the things that they enjoy to get through their day. Um, and it's less about, you know, political action or, um, you know, raising awareness in the way that some of those, uh, early neorealist films were, you know, overtly political. Um, this felt more like something like Tony to me than it did, uh, Terra Tremo or Bicycle Thieves or uh, Rome Open City. Yeah, I like what you say about the uh, how the the cycle, the cyclical nature of the thing, and uh, it that's a that's a very telling uh, opening shot. We start with a uh, the grain of wood, um, so a plank of wood with all this mm. grain and just years, centuries of whatever this tree was growing hundreds and hundreds of years as you see all the different grain which you know at first kind of looks like a, a seascape with a, a knot looking like the sun and the waves of the grain kind of waving through but then you know it's a uh, it's telling of the passage of time and this place and how it's kind of always been here and always will be here and then we pan off to see the empty streets and the wind uh, interacting with all the laundry that's there mm. which automatically kind of makes me feel that this is a from the first shot it's a story of you know of of uh it's a it's a story of time and it's a story of uh uh female perspective um having the laundry be there and the wind blowing through it and almost all the shots that establish the town feel like it's a it's a you know it's women's work it's this idea of uh you know, this is how the town is held together by all these all these strings and laundry between them. Um, so you're kind of like looking at the visual symbol of uh, how everyone is connected in this in this town. How the you know uh, the ropes connect between the different apartments and how everyone knows everyone's dirty laundry because it's airing out there in the open. And so there is you know this idea of the public that she's uh, she comments on. Um, that everyone knows everything about each other because this town is so small and everything is out there in the open, I think. Um, yeah. And that's underlined by the, the, the opening moments where um, they're sending their children around to the family's houses and to other people's houses to notify them that this stranger showed up, yeah. you know, it's just somebody that they don't recognize and they immediately assume correctly uh, that it's an inspector um, so there is just this immediate feeling of, you know, this is a very tight knit community where everybody's either related or knows, you know, somebody, uh, who's related and, um, you know, there's, there's 
there's no place for these outsiders who even as some you know the 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 guy is is from this this town um it just makes it that much more striking when they arrive um and i mean to the point where the the style of the film literally shifts uh to mm-hmm. accommodate their arrival yeah um I I do think we we should talk about the the cinematography of the film oh, yes. uh, in the context of uh, these um, I mean in general of course but also in the context of these sort of individual objects that Varda um, focuses on throughout the film whether it's uh, wood wood and cats I think are the two kind of big things that yes. that keep coming up but there's also the laundry. Um, there's, you know, there's some really beautiful shots of boats in this movie and Mm -hmm. of train tracks. Um, she really, uh, you know, lays it all out there. And, uh, you know, the first time I watched this movie was on, on the, the DVD, um, release. Um, and it, it looked okay. Yeah. Um, this restoration is gorgeous. (laughs) It's pretty. And, you know, I mean, the, the, her, uh, ability to compose a beautiful shot is not surprising as somebody who who was a photographer. Um, but the way that she moves the camera is, uh, incredibly impressive and very confident, uh, for somebody who had never even seen movies, uh, and was working with a crew of seven. Mm The, the, the way that she's able to compose a beautiful image, you know, pan the camera or track it back and then land on another beautifully composed image um, is just reflective of how much of a natural filmmaking talent she had. Um, and somebody who is not just, you know, focused on making an interesting image, but is actually thinking about what she's fixating on or how she wants to um, place these characters within their environment. Every single thing she's doing is with intention. I think that's what makes this stand out from the other French new wave where a lot of the cinematography in that movie was kind of caught on the fly and mistakes were written as if uh they were intentional later as you know as any new uh movement happens you know kind of like you kind of take the mistakes you make and make them part of your style um you know i think pedro almodovar said that best when he said you know the best thing about your first film is that all your mistakes then become part of your style (laughs) um and so that that's i think that's a lot of that uh, new wave films, uh, they forgave that uh, because, you know, oh, we're handheld. We're in the streets. Of course, it's going to look a mess. Um, whereas Varda is doing this years before them and saying it doesn't have to. It can look absolutely stunning and you can still have that same feeling and those same emotions and that same kind of same kind of, uh, uh, you know, intent. And I think. It's uh, like you like we've said uh, hit upon many times, uh, you know, her photographic eye is huge in this, um, you know, to the point where it's not it, she's that's why I call I think I called it earlier an ethnographic docudrama because it's her studying the community, 
her taking notes on the community, her writing the dialogue, transposing the dialogue that they said, hiring the people of the community to be the actors for the community stuff, and then, you know, taking that documentary camera around uh, her still camera and taking photos and building the entire storyboard out of photos and then uh, filming it. Uh, you know, it's I think she said a, at some interview somewhere, I can't remember exactly pinpoint where it was, she said, uh, you know, I wanted to make my photographs move. And that, that was kind of like the, the impetus for her to want to make a film was I liked my photographs. I wanted to see them move. Um, so that idea that, you know, right off the bat, it's it's movement. It's the camera panning and stopping on a shot and then you think you're done and then the camera moves again, you know, 16, 17, 18 second shots that just keep moving and moving. And I think if the Steadicam had been invented, uh, she, you know, she would, the, the, the shots would just be even more fluid and moving through spaces. And even at that time where she is moving the camera from outside to inside, back to outside again, um, you know, reading about the amount of dolly track they were just laying everywhere within this town so she could pull off these uh, amazing shots, um, you know, trusting her cinematographer to, you know, to to uh, hold the camera steady enough to uh, make everything work. Because that's the other thing. You can tell when the camera is handheld in a lot of movies. In this movie, you can tell she... Uh, yeah. there's stabilization all the way through she's she's making that that effort to do things the right way and then all the small details like you said cats and wood and boats um then also like stagnant pools you know mm. no, no matter how much this looks picturesque bucolic and lovely uh there's also this stagnation this uh, rot that's happening within a lot of the stuff that you know you can't escape you know there's no escaping this uh this you know decay and you know some of the uglier things even though they're shot beautifully they're still supposed to invoke an ugliness that you know whether it be in the some of the faces of the locals who are both uh beautiful and some of their cragginess you know their age and their uh you know they're not movie stars like our young couple is so having that kind of uh, ugliness be a part of the beauty as well is uh is a uh, adds to that realism i think that uh made it kind of uh, very uh evocative of the neo-realist movements yeah there there's definitely uh sort of like a walker evans or um mm. you know uh dust bowl photography uh feeling as well um but there's never a sense i think in the film that she's doing this to bring attention to the plight of the fishermen or um to sort of uh make any kind of significant statement about the place to me it is an evocation that really just wants to get it right uh i feel like and you know of course like anytime you make anything you're choosing the images that you want to include you are inherently biased in one direction or another in terms of your perspective but it does feel a lot like what she's striving for is a certain kind of objectivity uh towards her subjects um 
primarily through those images and and you know there's some great lines of dialogue uh that she um says she mostly took from uh the people during her her interviews um she didn't have a tape recorder so she just took tons and tons of notes um from them and she ended up with a film that was uh silent and um went back and dubbed everybody in the movie um the the two actors uh dubbed their own lines but um she got actors to dub the rest of the cast um which initially um annoyed them uh but they eventually embraced the film and i I read somewhere that she would go back and show it every 10 years uh to the town which i think is really great um but you could totally watch this movie on silent and get 90% out of it, what you get with the sound included, um, because I think her visual storytelling, but also just generally speaking, her um, mise-en-scene is, is so compelling and cohesive uh, that I think it would be... Uh, you know, very easy in the, in the same way that, uh, her later short opera move would, would totally work silently. Uh, most of it is, is music over it anyway. Um, so, you know, when she says she wanted to be a filmmaker to have her images move, it's very easy to believe that because she seems to have put a lot more effort into the, the, the visuals, um, than into, you know, the lines of dialogue, which can be wonderful at times, um, but ultimately I think less important than the power of the images we're seeing. I completely agree. I think the the striking thing is then when you take the visuals of the town, which are so fluid and uh, kind of exploratory, um, then you move into the visuals of the, the, the lovers, the couple, and they are there's movement in them as well but everything seems a lot more detached and uh, intentionally artistically composed where you have like uh, you know where they exist in the frame um, when they're trying to uh, discuss between the two of them these different ideas of uh, love and their relationship with each other and you have that happening at the same time as their uh they're stacked a certain way in the in the image, or they're touching a certain way, or um, there's a there's a there's a bit more of a coldness and kind of a theatricality to the framing of the uh, of the young lovers, and uh, which sets the visually sets them apart from the uh, the rest of the story as well. So, um, you know, her intention of having those two pieces feel different. Um, for someone making their first film there's an assuredness of how to do that as well which I find very you know if we're to you know continue with our line of thought of suspicious of uh, how many movies she's seen or whatnot uh, <laughs> you know there that is a that is a big red flag for that because it's there's such a specific intent and uh, visually different style between the two that it's a uh, you know for the amount of time they had for the amount of money they had and for the amount of crew they had um you know you really do have to be uh very uh 
observant and good with the language of cinema to be able to separate those two so completely. Yeah, I think for me, the the couple sequences feel um, visually less cohesive with their um, thematic intentions and more generalized in their approach to sort of catching images with a wide net like yeah i get i get the sort of like uh persona-ish um profiles and they're beautiful and they're executed really well um the use of you know what what is essentially voiceover for them um as they're walking through these wide open spaces very uh attractive and interesting and uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call it experimental, but certainly style, highly stylized. Mm. Um, but do I really feel like that served their story uh, significantly? Nah, I don't know. I, to me, it's a little bit like student student filmish mm-hmm. uh, those sequences, which is you know not to say that they're not um, accomplished visually. Um, but more that it felt like she was feeling out her technique in those sequences. Um, And, you know, in the same way that the delivery of the lines is very um, intentionally wooden and um, unaffected, the uh, affected visuals feel more like a a choice to make these sequences stand out from the footage that she was making uh, in the other section of the film and less like something that really lends itself to the story that's being told. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I think the formal quality the formal nature of kind of what it's doing that's why I kind of felt like it felt like a kind of a stage play I could see this being a modern performance op on a stage where they're they're hitting their marks just precisely to kind of create a a, you know an affectation of kind of what they're doing Um, but yeah no there is a and knowing of the movies that I've seen past this of hers knowing that that is not a style she embraced uh, moving forward uh, makes me very happy <laughs> <laughs> because this uh, you know that idea that this feels film schooly like that's uh, I think uh, because you know film school would follow these uh, these notions of uh, this artistic uh, staging of uh, composition from these uh, European right. art house films from this time and so you know experimenting in terms of kind of like trying something new but not like experimental film like uh i think uh her uh l'opera mouffe is more experimental in terms of kind of like a stan brackages uh you know uh combining yeah. a juxtaposition of shots versus this which is just uh you know trying to you know almost a painterly quality almost like modern painting uh, you know, very uh, straight lines, very you know stacked and flat in a lot of sense, uh, in a lot of shots, 
and uh, you know almost mechanical in terms of what uh, you know if we have this shot from this side then we have that shot from that side of the same thing but with the man in front and the woman behind and then we have the woman in front and the man behind and there is that sense of like really uh, trying to make the image flatter and two-dimensional so you can kind of meld these stories together it's almost like that story is written on the page and so it's almost like uh, engravings in a book the way that they're uh, putting those pictures together um, but you know it, it is such a stark contrast to the uh, the living breathing uh, cinematography in the village stuff you know I think uh, who was it uh, I'm trying to remember who the uh, cinematographer or who the filmmaker was that talks about a uh, uh, oh, it was, I think it's Matthew Almerick. Um, yeah, yeah. In that interview, he says, you know, and here's her first shot, and, uh, you know, Varda already has the wind at her side. Like, you know, the wind is uh, yeah. is blessing her, all of her cinematography <laughs> in that scene because, you know, it's there to uh, add so much uh, life to every shot because it's a, it's a moving presence, which is one of those... Uh, one of those... Uh, you know, favorite subject matters of people who talk about uh, cinephilia, this idea of uh, of uh, movement within movement within movement. You know, which is what makes cinema come to life for them. is a uh, is a truly truly uh, you know, it's a much more uh, engaging cinematography than the other one. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, like the. I liked your use of mechanical because it's less an evocation of mood or, or tone and mm. more just a delineation of style from the other side. Um, it's, it doesn't lend itself to very much beyond kind of what she wants to say about how that section is being filmed, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's no, kind of like self, self-referential yeah. um, and ser- you know, serves only um, kind of an, an intellectual purpose. Um, that being said, like she's got a great eye. So it's not like these images are not fun to look at and beautiful. Um, it's just, yeah, there's, there's less there, I think, when you are um, comparing it to uh, what we see in the in the fisherman section and and what we're going to see of of Paris in Clio, which I think is a lot more um, integrated into the the overall whole. We've talked about the cinematography, but we didn't haven't talked uh, in depth about. Uh, well, we've touched on it, but uh, Varda's uh, point of view. Um, how uh, she is that comment you made earlier that uh, John Berger said about uh, men insert themselves and women uh, react to situations uh, there's a real sense of that throughout this film as well where you know you have these men sitting around grumbling about the state of things while women continuously uh, make their lives uh workable and comfortable you know between doing the laundry feeding the kids moving the kids around uh listening to the outsides listening to the men make their proclamations and then coming behind them and 
you know, whispering how it really should be. Yeah, doing uh, the hard work. Doing the hard work, which uh, you could tell, you know, not that there are sides, but you can tell uh, what her point of view is within this film very easily. The uh, the the subject matter she chooses, you know, it's a uh, as much as the fishermen's lives are important in terms of kind of like how they get their catch and what is going on with the government and how that works. Um, it's just as important as the work that the women are doing behind the scenes and making things happen. And I think nothing uh, crystallizes that idea more clearly than um, during the night of the party where all the, uh, all the guys that were in the, uh, the uh, jousting boats are sitting in their hall, dressed in their uniforms, singing their songs, swaying their arms, and drinking and eating. And the women are on the outside just laughing at them and saying, all right, I better get in there. We're never going to get to the dance and have fun ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, you have that sense of, like, this is a very masculine thing that they are doing, and it's no women allowed, And but they're singing love songs. And then you have all the women outside giggling, going, if they were even half as uh, romantic as they're pretending to be in there, we'd all be having a lot more fun kind of uh, attitude, which I just found to be... Uh, you know, brought a smile to my face, made me uh, made me laugh and tickled me uh, in a way that uh, other scenes of that film didn't. And it makes me very happy that they kind of end on that uh, joyous, you know, party festive uh, attitude because uh, it's good to know that, like the guy says, that uh, this party doesn't change anything. It just makes us happy. It 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 is true. You need those moments of happiness to keep going through the doldrums of uh, all the other challenges in life. Yeah, and the the way that the the um, challenges uh, that both the men and the women face are equally foregrounded in that section of the film uh, is very uh, different than those neorealist films that this uh, you know came after and supposedly was not influenced by but certainly you can draw the comparison uh to them um you know i mean those are those are big emotional crescendo finale movies with you know people fighting against corrupt systems and getting shot in the streets or um you know uh, causing uh, uprisings um this is not that kind of a movie and uh it's not in, intended to change any minds about this fishing village or about fishing villages in general um it is it is simply meant to evoke uh that community and do justice to it um and so yeah i, th I think that's uh, a very distinct component of this movie that stands out from not all of the films that that came before it in terms of ethnographies but certainly um the vast majority of them and and it stands out from uh the subsequent new wave films that were produced which are are significantly more uh you know uh bold i'll say in their yeah. grand statements that they want to make yeah, there's no railing against a system that uh, happens in this film. I mean, even even the inspectors who are there, I mean, 
they're not there for malicious intent. They're literally there to be like, listen, there's bacteria in the shellfish. You guys got to stop doing this. Like you're going to get people sick. And we see the repercussions of that, of a young boy dying. Uh, But life goes on. Like if they don't fish, then they have nothing. So they have to kind of keep going. So even when the cops come to arrest someone for what they did and take them to jail for five days, even then they're just like, yeah, you know, uh, we understand. If you if you want, I know this will upset your mom and get you in trouble with your girlfriend. So why don't you just go inside, grab your things, and we'll meet you at the train station. Like you know, just even even the police aren't set up as being something that <laughs> yeah, is like right. something to rally against. They're they're just they're just like everyone else. They're also just kind of living their lives, doing their jobs, and bringing this guy to jail is their job, but. Doesn't mean they have to like it. Doesn't mean they're malicious about it. They're just kind of doing it. Or and, that they need to be like, you know, eliminated. Um, oh, yeah. Or anything like that. Yeah. So they're, they're just like the cats that show up in, in town. Exactly. They're just part they of... They serve their purpose. They do what they're supposed to do, and that's that. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I think that's that, that's just about all the, the punk court that we have today. Um, but we did want to talk about a couple of her... Uh, shorts three uh, to be specific that she made after this film uh, and before uh, Cleo five to seven, which is her next feature and um, arguably her most famous and Mm. acclaimed film. Um, The, the first of these is uh, Osazan au Chateau, which was a commissioned work, um, Poincourt was not a success. Um, it showed at Cannes and then showed for, I think, a one-week run maybe uh, in Paris uh, with a with a Jean Bigot short, Apropos de Nice, um, in front of it. A lot of the sort of intelligentsia of Paris went to see the film, so it was seen by kind of the people who, you know, it would have made a difference in terms of influence on the culture, um, but it was never... Uh, released widely very difficult to see for quite a long time and only uh, through this offer to make this film a couple of years later I think it was 57 is that right yeah 57 Um, was she able to make another movie and and initially she didn't want to do it but was um, talked into it Um, and uh, it's a film about uh, a, uh, the Loire Valley, the chateaus that dot the Loire Valley um, for a, uh, a tourism board. So this was a film intended to get people to come uh, to see these, these uh, ruins slash uh, glorious chateaus uh, that dot the countryside uh, around the Loire. Uh, and, uh, it's just a wall to wall delight, this movie. Oh my goodness. It is, uh, it is artfully exquisite and beautiful and buoyant and fun. Like it's funny. Usually we talk about the short films that led up to the feature film of this director. Right. And it's, uh, it's interesting to, uh, have an episode where we, we end with the short films of this director. Cause it is true. She, uh, I think she was insulted a bit being asked to make a travel log film, but and so there's a kind of a 
playful rebellion in some of what she's doing kind of like well if i'm going to do this travelogue film i'm going to do it my way and i'm going to have fun with this and because of that there's such a uh, playfulness to the to it that it does ev- evoke a a sense of i want to travel to these places there it's a it's a and we didn't mention uh, this film is in color. Point Court was black and white. This film is in color. And so because of that, um, you know, usually a lot of directors struggle with their first color assignments, um, you know, after working in a certain medium for a while. But uh, it's like everything else with her. She just comes fully formed with an exceptional ability to uh, to work with color film. Yeah. And I think that gets even stronger in the next movie that we're going to talk about. But but. I, I just I think the playfulness of this film is so striking and was not present in the previous movie no. and and is so uh, essential to the rest of her films mm-hmm. um, that it is uh, just surprising, if not shocking, yeah. that this was made, you know, on a commission that she didn't necessarily uh, want to to make and. Um, there's so much life here and, you know, you would absolutely believe that this was, uh, a passion project (laughs) if you didn't know the context, um, behind it, because there's, there's so much surrounding, um, the chateaus and the, the history of it and the poetry that she reads. Um, it just feels sort of all-encompassing um and i think the thing that i like the most about it you know i i love the the models that she's yeah uh, you know placed in these uh ruins which you know on one on the one hand is is kind of intentionally i think silly Mm -hmm. um but also like gives you this feeling of like what it would be like for you to be there like it's almost like they are the surrogate for the viewer uh you know looking fabulous and having a wonderful time in these locations yeah exactly Um, the thing i like is that you know the most kind of tourism movies or movies about a place kind of evoke the feeling of the place mm-hmm. and and i would include point court in that uh for sure um this movie feels like it's evoking the feeling of what it would feel like to be in that place which is a little bit of a different thing yes. and uh is quite uh perceptive for somebody uh who's making a travelogue video because you're not just you're not coming away with it thinking like wow that's really beautiful um wouldn't it be great to go there and see how beautiful it is which ultimately like in a lot of situations you can just say well i've seen that because i i know what the feeling of the place is because i just watched a movie about it um but if you if you're able to can you know convey to people what it feels like to be somewhere that's not something that you can get through film that's something that you have to experience in person and so for her to be able to evoke that feeling i think is just um really really fun and uh and impressive yeah the uh it's almost like she's she's uh calling back to a time that never existed almost Mm. as if 
uh, come to this land of fairy tales, which never, never is real, but I'm making it real, and I'm giving you the sense of what it would be like to live a fairy tale life here. Yeah. And, you know, having those models be dressed into uh, shots, com- compositions of the buildings, not only does it stand out as as unique and visually striking, but it also is kind of evoking, like, when these chateaus were at their height, people were dressed in the fanciest clothes imaginable of that period being within these structures. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having someone be dressed in their finest fineries at a place like that wouldn't be odd in the time that it was at its most popular. So having modern people dressed in the most highest of mod culture of that time, like it stands out, but it also makes sense in a weird way. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, the poetry that she's, that they're reading over the, over the chateaus, um, having both a narrator and someone reading a poem at this, you know, kind of like uh, bouncing back and forth. Um, The staging of, of like the, the ground, the groundskeeper and stuff, like the way that she uh, moves the people through the space as well as the camera. Um, is it's almost like a musical, like the way they kind of come together, pass, and then swipe through while characters are, uh, you know, doing uh, doing uh, work in a very symmetrical manner, like left and right of frame. Yeah. Um, you could see, you know, it's. <laughs> For a person who doesn't watch movies, there's so much film <laughs> language in here that, uh, you know, it's like Venus in the Half Shell, right? That's kind of the story she's made of herself. Because when you go back and read books about her life, it's literally, I was born here, I moved here, I re- my, renamed myself Agnes, and then I went to Paris, and I, now I make movies. And there was no, there's no, like deep history of kind of like anything of like where she learned this, where her inspirations were. There were no inspirations. There's me and then there's my work and that's it. Like it, it came from me and that's all there is. And I find that absolutely like, uh, mythological that she's creating this, uh, this character of herself. Cause I, 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 I should have written it, written it down, but her, her real name, you know, she, she changed that name when she turned 18 and, uh, and it's almost kind of like I've made this character and this person who is now 18 has never seen a movie because they are a new person. And now we move <laughs> forward from this character on and this, you know, just going through all these chateaus in that valley and how stunning everything is. The, the detail work she picks out, the, uh, the, the use of color. She goes there, you know, she went there with her. She says every time I went there with my guidebook in hand and for this 20-minute short, we spent eight weeks making it. And you're just like, man, that is just absolutely fantastic. That's the way it should be made. Not like, let's plan it and shoot it in a day, which is how they yeah. would do it nowadays. Right. The most efficient way possible. She went there and just explored with a camera. And then brought some teams in later and started exploring some more. And uh, you can really get a sense of... of uh, it's almost like a sly subversion of the normal travel log films. She is definitely making sure she says, "This is my stamp on this film." Yeah. Like, there's nothing like this. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, her name was Arlette. Um, Arlette, before, there we go. Yeah, when she was born. I, I think um, the way that, you know, she incorporates the groundskeepers is so great. And again, indicative of the way that she is searching for the thing that grabs her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no reason for them to be in this movie. No. Uh, of course. Um, but the one line about how uh, the, the, the family that built the chateau what, you know, was only there for one generation or something like that, but the groundskeepers have uh, enjoyed it for three or yeah. something. Yeah, they, you know, show, they show the groundskeeper things. family tree of like all the, yes. the family photos yes. they're taking on yeah. the grounds. Oh, it's fantastic. She's and she, That's where I like, you know, from this uh, point court and then later Gleaners, uh, you know, you can really sense that she has always resonated with the working class of people um, and how how they uh, how they exist within within their spaces and how their generational storytelling is just as vital to the understanding of the world. It's like we said, it's a, uh, these films are almost like that, uh, a people's history of film. It's, uh, it's coming from it from the other end, you know, instead of having a, uh, a, uh, you know, a Barry Lyndon, uh, up in the castles and what their lives are like. We're seeing it from the groundskeepers point of view of the, that, that livelihood as well, which is, uh, which is a fascinating point of view. Yeah, I think just generally in France, there's an appreciation of sort of the pastoral landscape um, and and the 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 pockets of culture outside of uh, big cities that we don't have here. I mean, we have it in sort of a more kind of ugly populist way that mm-hmm. um, intentionally overlooks the rich uh, cultural value that can be found uh outside of cities um but here uh it helps round out this picture um you know the guy who's who paint who takes sundays off from his um from his store to to paint the chateaus every weekend um oh and then incorporating them as we visit each new chateau like yeah that's just gorgeous that's a that's a beautiful framing device that she uses to uh to help uh with that as well i mean i definitely want to go there now oh, after completely. watching this i think my favorite was the 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 ruins that were built mm-hmm. on the coast um that's such a cool idea i just love that yeah i don't know <laughs> well speaking of the coast that's a great yes. segue into the next short film. Yes. Do you want to? Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's not a ton of background no. that isn't that's different from from what we just went. They over, enjoyed right? her travel log so much that the same people commissioned her to do another one about the uh, uh, Côte d'Azur and all the little cities that are along the the coast there. Uh, 1958 as well. So she went out there again with her guidebook in hand and. Another eight weeks of uh, composing, uh, composing shots and figuring out ways to tell the story. And one of the things that she definitely makes uh, um, makes clear in this uh, version is uh, the difference between the uh, tourists who are there and the uh, rich who live there. 
So there's this idea of Eden and this being in a place that exists here along the coast and uh, the different uh, ways that uh, it invokes this uh, paradise and uh, how most of the most beautiful beaches, most beautiful views, breathtaking vistas are all privatized and the uh, people who come to, to take part in this world are uh, left with these uh, more uh, cramped and uncomfortable settings, but they make the most of it. Like, once again, we're getting a sense of what it would be like to be there from, uh, you know, from uh, the humor uh, that she injects to the, you know, once again, sly subversions. We're going across all these beautiful ruins along the coast, uh, all these statues uh, that have deteriorated over the years of, uh, you know, different uh, women. And then we we cut to uh, panning across all these uh, com uh, garish pink uh, plastic uh, cupie dolls along a wall along the same coast, and kind of like the idea of uh, the modernization of this area. And it's just absolutely same thing, fun, playful, enjoy joyous. Um, uh, and then as the as the travelogue goes, it does become a bit more. Uh, 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 not serious in tone, but it becomes a lot more contemplative as we get to the uh, the graveyard along the ocean, and then you know we go out to the lonely island and the horses playing in the sea, and uh, it, it moves away from kind of like the fun culture of it, but then goes right back into carnival once again, like in Point Court, yeah. and ending in a party. But that party and the way that people are partying is so violent. <laughs> I don't know how it's fun at all, so it really kind of leaves a weird, <laughs> sour kind of taste of uh, at the end, which she caps it off with a very, very specific, all the gates closing to us. It's almost like she's saying, this place is great. We can't afford to be here, yeah. and this is not the lifestyle you want to lead. <laughs> Look at the sunburns. Here's the prickly pears and the cactuses, and uh, here's this insane party where uh, there's violence and threats of danger all around, and people are just like punching you in the face with confetti because <laughs> <laughs> all the real stuff will be behind behind these gates that you can't access so this is what you're going to be left with is all this uh, mess yeah the uh the when i watched the film like obviously you notice that divide and then reading about it, it reminded me of the um the ruth reichel review of le cirque where um, she reviewed it twice, sort of side by side, once when she went as Ruth Reichel and then once in a disguise. Um, ah. And she got, she like, one of them was a four-star review and one of them was a half-star review. <laughs> um, and, you know, just talking about, like, you know, how magical the meal is when, when you're, you know, somebody that they want to impress yeah. and how miserable it is when it's not... Um, and that felt like this to to me um for sure and then just the 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 colors are so uh vivid and memorable here just that you can really tell that they had a lot of uh fun finding those pops of color mm -hmm. wherever they could um and then to me this this documentary is like a people watching documentary oh, so fun. you know there's just so much so many different kinds of people to look at so many different kinds of fashion to look at. 
Um, it just it feels really like a time capsule um, so much for a place that is, you know, still um, a significant uh, location in France, but is obviously entirely different than than it used to be. So it just feels um, very much like this this priceless artifact in that way. Yeah, and the other thing we we didn't mention in both of these is uh, her love, like uh, as as collector as a collector. Um, you know, her love of grouping. So she groups her shots together. So if we're talking about blue, here's all my shots that have something blue in them. Here's mm-hmm. all my yellow mm-hmm. shots. Here's all my shots of seashells. Here's all my shots of uh, sunburns. Um, and it's just absolutely fantastic to kind of just uh, group things in that way. So it's not just they stand out and then they also, uh, you know, by uh, by putting the shots together, you can see the variations a lot more clearly as if as as opposed to them uh, being mixed in with the rest of the footage elsewhere. So I, I find that I find that to be also something that is really awesome about the way she uh, she goes about uh, structuring these uh, little shorts. Um, yeah, and that that is definitely the case with with the next one, Lopra Move, which mm. um, you know there's. Uh, that whole sequence of people touching their faces, oh, which I thought was yeah. pretty, pretty fun. Rubbing their um, noses, cleaning their eyes, blowing their nose. Oh, it's uh... yeah. So, so this one, it's also called um, "Diary of a Pregnant Woman" mm-hmm. um, in uh, in English. Uh, was more of a personal piece than than the other uh, two shorts that that we just mentioned. Um, she made it while pregnant with uh, her first child. Um, and I think also presages films like Daguerreotypes, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, others in just in terms of, of capturing that, um, Paris street scene and filming the area that's around her. And then obviously the, the duality of private versus public, um, one book described the, uh, I mean, that's a pumpkin that they cut into, right? Somebody yeah. called it a watermelon in a book, and I was like, have you ever seen a watermelon before? I don't think they have, because, yeah, that was definitely a pumpkin. <laughs> yeah, that's I weird. Mean, that That's just a good example of, like, her, you know, I think, playful, um, you know, cut to go from, from a, a pregnant woman to slicing open a, a pumpkin, uh, you know. <laughs> Gutting it out. Sli- yeah. Um, well, that's that, that's that stage, right? I think my, my wife always said... Or our midwife said to us uh, when my wife was pregnant with the first, our first child, uh, you know why your pregnancy is nine months is because by the time you hit n- month nine, you can't wait for this to get out of you. And yeah. so it's almost like you could tell she is uh, she is almost she is eight or nine months pregnant in those uh, in those stills uh, in the scenes, and uh, you know you cut you cross cut right to a uh, to a pumpkin being sliced open and it being taken out. It's like all right, I'm ready to be done with this. <laughs> I want this baby out of me now. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she's able to sort of narratively connect these two um, components that she wants to talk about the, the, the intimate and the, and the public. Yeah. Um, Almost more successfully than the point court in terms of yeah. c- connection. Cause now instead of it being disconnect, there is there is a more of a connection between these ideas between the uh, the people in the streets the area that there is uh, 
we're talking about uh is it uh, Ruul Muftard? It, that's the street that she's uh, yeah. documenting uh and people in that town just call it the Le Mouf and uh you know so you're mixing where she's from and where she's living at that time and the uh and the people of that area and then you're kind of taking from the uh her being pregnant and then the rituals of uh you know, flirtations and love and uh, sexualization, which leads to the pregnancy um, later, and just kind of like all those images that kind of meld together really well, uh, contrasting with the uh, city street life scenes. It uh, it really evokes a, uh, I think, a more successful uh, compare and contrast. Um, yeah, you know, than uh, than her first film. If if somebody had told me that this was her first film. I wouldn't be surprised, but I would also be super impressed that this movie, I mean, well, just from a, from a purely kind of, uh, experiential perspective, I think it's a real pleasure to watch. Um, you know, those, those, uh, groupings, um, the juxtaposition of styles, um, the sense that you get of her playfulness and her, um, rigor in terms of, um, framing and searching for uh what she what most engages her um it's all just really fun to watch um but it, it also again kind of feels like uh it's one of those shorts that you watch and you think wow i just like got every single thing that this filmmaker sort of concerns themselves with <laughs> and they're both their kind of strengths and um, thematic uh, underpinnings uh, in a neat, you know, 16 minute little package. Yeah. It's kind of impressive um, anytime that happens. And um, I think this is one of those uh, shorts that you could kind of show to somebody who's new to Varda and say, okay, this is a little bit of what you'll be seeing. And if you're interested after this, uh, yeah. you know, I've got got a bunch of movies to show you <laughs> oh that's fantastic because uh it's funny because uh i think it took uh seven films for us to get to that statement in kishlowski and mm. it took uh the final film of uh cone to uh get to that statement as well so it's uh it's interesting that we're getting uh the distillation film of uh, varda like uh right off the bat because you know this one was also 1958 so you know, yeah. she made uh, 54, 55, the point core. And then four years later, she drops three short films all at the same time and then doesn't go on to make her next film. Uh, I think from the point court to uh, Cleo is uh, seven years between the two. So, uh, no, four, four, oh, four years. Yeah. Oh. Cleo is 62. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's still though a big gap considering you know, where she was, it does seem like at this point in her career, she didn't necessarily think of herself as a filmmaker. Um, you know, she was making these movies and I think enjoying it and obviously, um, had an enormous amount of talent and potential, which by the way, I'm pretty confident that she would have not only known, but said very openly to people because she is definitely not somebody to, um, you know, uh, preach false modesty. Um, 
but I think it's not until Cleo that she feels like somebody who is going to be making movies for the rest of their life. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, yeah. Cause of the other two are uh, work for hire gigs. So right to make this short film, uh, about herself, La Promove, that's, this must be the, the catalyst that says, okay, no, this is still what I want to do. Cause this is, uh, this is her personal story. You know, it's almost like right. the, uh, the uh, one for them, one for you kind of method methodology. So doing yeah. two two paid for short films and then turning that money into making this uh, personal story, um, which still retains the uh, the you know the the thoughtful elements and the playful elements and the uh, stunning cinematography all all encapsulated in one. Like you said, it's uh, it's it's fantastic. It's not a I better change. I better change gears to try to make myself more uh, capital uh, to be uh, capitalized on yeah. and to, <laughs> to be more famous. It's a. I I'm gonna get to my point more more clearly now because this I, this is still my interest and this is how I want to tell my stories. Which that that is always to me the sign of someone who truly. Um, is an artist in terms of filmmaking. They're they're here to make you know they just want to tell their story and make images and you know it doesn't matter kind of like whether the money is there or not and at this point i think very soon after this she starts her own uh i think it's after cleo she starts her own film company that yeah has, uh, she's produced her own movies ever since then which is uh why uh the criterion uh, collection was able to get access to everything she's made Yep. So we we both have uh, this uh, very beautiful box that we can hold in our hands and say, "This is the uh, complete, at least non-installation related filmography mm-hmm. of uh, Anya Sparta, all of the the movies that she made." And um, I like to is, think they got is... that title from us. <laughs> I, I know that they do actually I, i'm start, i've started getting the residual checks good it's about time we get paid for our, uh, our brilliance <laughs> um so this is the, the you know this is the first step in in what will be our our longest journey um our, how did you feel watching this knowing you're gonna watch all these all the works from this I, person's entire life i felt super excited um I know that we're going to get into uh, some more uh, like some dramatic content as we move forward into later films, but the, the joy, the, uh, the effervescence, the uh, just the fun, playful nature of everything that she's made uh, up to this that we've watched uh, really has excited me to go back and or to get ready to watch the rest of uh, all of her work, knowing what's coming up. Um, and uh, once again, I am—I've uh, only seen three of her films out mm. of all of the films that are coming out. Um, oh wow! It's one don't of, tell me what. Don't tell I'm me not, which one. I'm not going to tell you anything. <laughs> I'm just going to say it's like when we when we pick who we're talking about next. Um, you know. I'm always gearing towards the ones that I haven't seen a lot of. That's why, you know, Kishlowski, I was super yeah. excited. Varda, I'm so excited. 
because you know you know Kubrick I w- uh, you know we got together yeah. because I had seen all of that person's films and so it was exciting to revisit but now I'm starting to discover as we make this podcast and we move forward in our lives that um, the journey of discovery is more exciting for me than the uh, journey of revisiting so it's it's super it's super fun so I'm I'm super excited to continue forward with this uh this journey and see all the pieces that I've missed in between and uh and just really kind of dig into uh, uh, this person's uh, fascinating life. Awesome. Yeah, I've seen um, quite a bit, um, but there's there's a lot out there um, that I, I've been sort of holding back, waiting uh, for this journey, but also just generally waiting um, to, to ease myself into. Um, obviously, uh, you know, as we're working through this i think there's a lot of areas that i'd like to revisit and explore uh why i haven't seen a lot of the early uh french new wave films uh in you know over a decade if not two decades um and uh in particular the work of jacques demy um you know it's definitely something that i respond to and will uh, you know, greatly inform, uh, Varda's career, both in terms of, uh, while he was alive and then after uh, he died, uh, very young. So, um, I think there's a lot that, um, this journey will open up for both of us. Um, and I hope, uh, everybody who is listening along, um, enjoys this journey as much as, as I think we will, because, um, this is a very rich catalog with a lot to um, think about. And uh, it's a diverse one too. There's um, very different movies ahead of us. I think the most diverse of, of any of the filmmakers that we've covered for sure, I would say. Yeah. And that's what makes it so exciting. We get to have a, uh, a rich tapestry of, uh, of, uh, of a filmmaker to uh, explore. And I think with that, I think we're complete for another week. 